Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver, and this is Brown v. Board at 67, No Leeway Rooks Revisited. Yesterday, Dr. Rucker Johnson highlighted some of the benefits that came from our often disjointed and short-lived efforts at desegregation in the wake of the Brown decision. Today, Dr. Noliwe Rooks talks to us about some of the harm that it caused. Dr. Rooks has been an important part of Integrated Schools for several years now. She's on our advisory board, and Courtney was a huge fan and learned so much from Dr. Rooks. I was honored to get to take a part in this conversation two years ago. We start out with a brief overview of a term that Dr. Rooks coined, segronomics, and then turn our attention back to the Brown decision and the many ways that the version of desegregation that followed was not what activists at the time were asking for. Hearing the story totally changed my understanding of what led to Brown and what the hopes were for integration. Hopefully it does the same for you. Let's take a listen. So my name is Noliway Brooks. I am a professor at Cornell University in Africana Studies and I direct the American Studies program. I'm also the author of four books, the most recent of which is called Cutting School, Privatization, Segregation, and the End of Public Education. I know that our listeners would appreciate hearing a little bit about what segronomics is. Oh, sure. Yeah. It helps me to put it in context um, where the term came from. I found myself in 2009 trying to answer the question of how the various bedfellows, for lack of a better word... (laughs) were intertwined, the intertwined relationships that seemed to uh, have a hand in shaping public education in 2009. You know, the philanthropists, hedge fund folks, college students, politicians. Right. So like all, all the people who are driving decisions around education, making change in education, like how did they all sort of find themselves in the same boat? Yeah, I was looking at this and kind of going, you know, why are you all who most of you who have nothing to do with public schools, your children didn't go to public schools, you know, you didn't go to public schools, you don't live in neighborhoods with these bad public schools, why are you trying to do this? And I I recognize I was trying to figure out where the the moment was where this started. Honestly, thought I was just going to kind of go back to the 80s or the 70s. But I kept going back, back, back farther and um, to the beginning of public education or state finance, compulsory public education in the United States, which is the post-Reconstruction period following the Civil War. And when I got back there, I recognized there were the same relationships. There were these business people and there were these philanthropists and earnest white people, uh, although then they were uh, evangelical religious people not college students, but... But still earnest. But they were very earnest, you know, about (laughs) wanting to fix this problem of education for Black children in the rural South, while being a little surprised that those relationships were not a 21st century phenomena. I also recognized throughout that research a thread where you always had these groups proposing solutions for children of color, poor children that looked absolutely nothing like what they wanted for their own kids, but that provided huge kind of profits in various ways for the businesses that they represented. The short way of putting it is segregation has always been really profitable for some people. And so that thinking about segregation and economics and the profit potential in it and the numbers of businesses that actually get proposed that wouldn't exist, like their business model does not work 
If you fix the problem of high levels of economic and racial segregation, they're out of business. There's a long way of saying I stuck together segregation and economics and came up with segronomics. So it's basically the way people make money off of keeping us apart. Yes, exactly. And I think that is one of the most surprising things to me about this work is when you look and if you follow the money, how how often under education is a, a growth market, is got market potential, is enriching all of these businesses. And it's always about educating these populations in ways very different than from the ways that we educate the children of the wealthy. You do not have wealthy kids being pushed into anything that looks like vocational education. It's like, oh, let's give them a classic education. They need to speak Greek and Latin and blah, blah, because it's going to make them citizens and it's going to make them human and their humanity will allow them to do all these other things. That's never what we say about poor kids and kids of color. It's always like they need to be trained in very strict very narrow, very particular way. Education's not the point. Money is the point. But it's segregation that really makes all of this possible, right? Yes. Segregation for poor people is a hindrance. Segregation for wealthy people is a bonus. You know, they're fine with not having a high level of numbers of special ed kids in their schools. They're fine with not having kids that are coming into schools who may not be eating regularly at home or have certain kinds of social dysfunction at home or high levels of homelessness. It's great for wealthy, well-resourced districts to keep all of them in the city schools where that kind of economic segregation hinders them because it benefits the wealthy community. So it's not about moving kids around. It's about breaking up that feeling that certain groups are just entitled to more than other groups when you're talking about tax dollars. So that's segronomics. That's sort of where we currently find ourselves. And and obviously that's tied in a lot of ways to the segregation that we still allow despite being, you know, 65 years after Brown versus Board of Education. But I'm wondering if you can tell us about your more recent research sort of in the wake of of writing Cutting School, because it feels like it really gets at some of these myths that we often tell about the Brown decision. Yeah, you know, so some some more recent work that I've been doing is in part engendered by the fact that after I wrote Cutting School, a lot of the people I was talking with, in Black communities at least, churches, civic organizations, book clubs, you know, things like the NAACP. And whenever I would, you know, do the, the kind of standard, of course, integration is the only thing that will save schools. It's just that is what has worked systemically. And therefore, you know, if we're going to fight these systemic inequities, you need a systemic solution. And we know that integration works. However, I would say that and get pushback regularly such that, you know, I became kind of surprised. Like, I was kind of like, okay, wait a minute. You know, what 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 is happening here that y'all are saying that you don't think integration works? And what they were saying, I mean, I'm almost ashamed to say what they were telling me back is a part of my family history. So my grandparents in the South, in Clearwater, Florida, were both educators. My grandfather was also very, very much involved in politics. He was, you know, local NAACP president, the Black Teachers Union president, um, an organization he founded called the Progressive League of Afro-American Voters. And what he and others really advocated for in organized ways from the 1920s on up to Brown really was for a kind of strengthening of Black civic and educational organizations and 
a vision of what integration could look like that was very different from what got implemented. So you're hearing in all these meetings, basically, you know, the, this version of integration that we got is not actually the vision for integration that we had wanted. Yes, exactly. So, so what was that, that vision that, that they were looking for? What they argued for across the South was a model of, of integration that sent the teachers first, right? So think about this. You have an educational model that's sending white teachers and administrators to black schools, black teachers and administrators to predominantly white schools. You do that for a few years and then you send the kids. Then after the adults have worked out what the infrastructure will look like, what the curriculum will look like after they've gotten used to each other and over their prejudices and and and, and all the groups are getting paid the same, which was a big thing. They were like, that's why we need to start with the teachers, because if we do this this way, then first of all, we're, we're going to equalize teacher salaries and we won't be paid so little. Also, if you're sending white teachers and white administrators into black schools that are all decrepit, the money will follow them as well to, to fix them. Right. Um, so you do that first. I mean, it's almost it's a it's a different version of what integrated schools is trying to do. What they what they were proposing was something very different. They were proposing democracy and they were proposing economic equality as a part of the integration effort that would then lead to educational equality. They were proposing reworking an entire society by having, you know, black administrators and and teachers enter each other's schools first, work out how we're going to educate first and the integration would have been on the backs of the adults first. Yeah. And then you send the kids after that. Instead, of course, what happened is the Black schools and Black teachers all got fired. How, how is it that these master teachers of Black kids, who are legendary in most people's memory, um, what you hear about are these teachers who were able to educate with little to nothing, kids from all kinds of economic backgrounds in Black communities to the highest levels that white society would allow them to rise to. So, you know, the doctors, the lawyers, like they're all coming through Black communities. They're all coming through Black teachers. Like, how is it that those people would say what is in their best interest is to send these children into hostile white environments. My, my grandfather would tell stories regularly about being the house being shot at, crosses being burned on the lawn, public intimidation. These folks knew exactly who the enemy was, exactly the links that they would go to. How do you decide that you're going to send your babies to those schools? by themselves. And the fact that I never stopped to ask the question that way, what was going on behind the scenes? What were they thinking that this was their strategy? Because it doesn't make sense in a way. And it's certainly after you see the first scenes of the Little Rock Nine and um, is one of the, the first spaces where uh, the integration test really took place. And, you, you know, you had a year of hell and if Black people and Black people had to have heard the stories about what those children went through, where acid is thrown in their face, people are throwing dynamite down the stairs at them. They're being physically attacked by teachers in the hallway. As those stories are going around Black communities of the links that white people are willing to go to in the school where it's hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
in what universe do you decide to send your children there? Topeka, Kansas, where Brown v. Board, you know, the lead case of the cases that became Brown v. Board, you know, one of the under-discussed results of that decision as white folks across the South really dug in and massively resisted the idea of integration is they figured out ways to close all kinds of Black schools and they figured out ways to fire Black teachers. When they fired the Black teachers in some states, You're talking about a third to a half of the black teaching force so they could hire white teachers because integration is coming now. So we're going to have to have more teachers teaching in the white schools because it never occurred to anybody that you'd be sending white kids to black schools. So the result of Brown v. Board was closing black schools and firing black teachers, which just further enriched white people. I think there's this idea that the white people had the great schools, and so the people of color just wanted access to them. And that was sort of the, you know, this like desperation for good education was where all of the impetus for Brown came from. And I feel like that's that's not exactly right. You even had Linda Brown's parents where they're saying, you know, we didn't have a problem with our schools. Our teachers were amazing. The black teachers at the school she would have gone to, I went to that school. My husband went to the school. We think that it was first class education. They taught you to withstand everything. They taught you to love yourself. They taught you about who you were in ways that helped you progress. They were strong, strong teachers. We just didn't want to have to to cross all these streets. Like it was a it was a transportation issue, not a quality of school issue for us. And in the aftermath of Brown and and in the oral histories there, her mother is almost lamenting, you know, that we did something to dismantle like 80 percent of the teachers in that school that she's talking about got fired Mm. because the school board immediately says, well, okay, let's build another white school because we have to now absorb these black students. But surely you don't expect us to let black teachers teach white students. Our vision, what we understand the Supreme Court to be saying is black students now meet white teachers. So there's no need for black teachers. It's this heartbreaking sort of missed history and misunderstanding of what the teachers were advocating for versus what actually happened. I didn't realize that this was actually a transportation issue by Linda Brown's family. Yes, yes. They didn't want her to have to walk across the big, I don't remember, was a four lane road or it was a big road that she would have to, to walk across. And they couldn't get her there because of working every day. And so it was for her safety. I somehow never heard that the Browns had zero problem with the black school. That that piece of it is definitely a piece that has been shocking to me as well, because, right, like, you know, the the image you have is like there are these terrible, terrible schools that everybody's sad about and they want a good school. And so the white school is the good school. And that's where they want to be able to send their kids to the good school. Yes. To go back and find that they were like, the schools were awful. We didn't have books. You know, they were giving us the hand-me-down, torn-up books. We didn't have heat in the winter. The infrastructure was awful. The teachers were excellent. Mm-hmm. We, didn't, we wanted better schools, but nobody ever said we wanted different teachers. And so that we embarked upon a path 
that got rid of both. Uh, but in some communities, literally 80, like Topeka, 80% of the teachers end up fired. And the interviews, we have some of the interviews of when they go to interview for jobs to teach the white kids. So, you know, the black teachers who are winning all kinds of awards and the boards of education in these segregated places are saying, you are a great teacher. Oh my God, teacher of the year, teacher of the year. You know, even when they go and interview to try to teach white children, the feedback is often, I just didn't like something about her. I just wasn't comfortable. I don't think our parents in Topeka will stand for this or the, I don't, they, she won't deal well with those parents, right? Like, so none, no black teachers end up hired in Topeka, Kansas, which is the seat of Brown v. Board after they've closed the one black school. It's in collections of oral histories that Linda Brown's mother, she had some regret about what she did. While pride, of course, that they and their child have become the symbols of, you know, civil rights and progress, you know, but she's like, but why everybody keeps saying our schools were bad? And more to the point, you know, the schools could have used some some modernization. Like no nobody is saying schools were in great physical shape. But the teachers, the teachers were the key. And that nobody talked about teachers in the entire case. It led me to look back through the entire Brown, the transcript, the ruling. Nobody even mentions teachers in the whole thing. Mm. Like so as a part of the integration effort, that very, very important aspect of education for anyone is left out. There's this quote I found from MLK uh, when he's in Atlanta in uh, like 1957-8. He's talking to a to the Black Teachers Union and he says, you know, we have to fight hard or we're going to end up integrating ourselves out of power. We did not start, start this to integrate ourselves out of power. But what he's talking about is exactly what happened in its, in its schools and kids and communities that have suffered as a result. You know, I'm thinking a lot about some of the myths in reference to like Brown v. Board. And I think one of those myths is that there are certain parents who do and certain parents who don't care about education. Right. And you see this like anytime anyone writes anything about the problem with our educational system, there's going to be in the comment section, well, it's all about those parents. If they just cared about education more, more. <laughs> they just valued it the same way we did, then they're welcome to come to our school. Yep, yep. It's not about race. It's just about do they care enough about their yeah, kids' it's education. All this, it's individual, that grit narrative, right? If you had parents that cared more and kids, if we teach them grit, right. all of this would be fixed. It's the, there's, a, there's something broken in the people, not the system. So generally, we will point a finger at individuals and are fine with individual effort. And we will glom on to every story of someone who beats these odds and say, see, if they could do it, why couldn't you? Someone who who manages to run the gauntlet and get into these schools and have a good life after, that becomes a pushback to every story about this large scale exclusion from from taxpayer resources. If Barack Obama could do it, why can't you? Oprah Winfrey got through. What's wrong with your kid? So all of the stories of winning few though they may be, become the the bar that we're all supposed to reach for. And so you're not supposed to ask questions. It's just because those communities are lazy and those parents don't know how to parent properly. 
what's that called? You know, people always say the best trick the devil ever pulled off was convincing the world he didn't exist. Right. Like that's almost like what's happening here where we're those in power have almost convinced us, convinced some of us that inequality really does not exist that segregation really doesn't exist, that it really is where people want to be and it's just the luck of the draw or hard work or grit that accounts for the way the world works. Meritocracy. Yeah, it's just meritocracy. Meritocracy actually works. Don't look behind this curtain. Don't question. And again, that's what, you know, I and others are really trying to point out. Yes, individual effort is fabulous. More power to you. You know, if you get through there, we all want you to write the how-to book to teach us, you know, what you did. That is not a solution to what's broken here. Right. The, the fact that there are a few exceptional people who have who have figured out a way to make the system work to their benefit, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't account for the plethora of wildly unqualified white people <laughs> who who have just found themselves yes. in boardrooms, in government, in all of these places. Right. The fact that a handful of exceptional people have figured out how to make the system work for them is not a proof that the system is not trying to work against them. Doesn't mean the system is just. Right. It doesn't mean that it's a meritocracy. What what white parents are willing to do or wealthy parents, I want to say mostly white parents, but wealthy parents are willing to do to ensure that their kids get what they believe to be the best of everything, the links that they will go to, to, to keep out anything that they believe might in any way damage the, the psyches or the futures of their children. That's the legendary stories, like really. So I think that's interesting, right? Like, what is this popular narrative? What you're saying is that these pieces of history are really hidden. Yes, but not. They're like hidden in plain But they're not part of our national story. They're not part of the narrative, no. Exactly. And, and exactly. so I guess, like, who's benefiting by that being outside of the story? Um, it works with our national narrative. Yeah. It, and, and with wanting to demonize a region of the country, you know, people offer the other pushback I get regularly when I want to talk about this. But people are constantly like the North was as bad. The laws just weren't written, you know, just not just written in. So, you know, white people in the North just sort of picked up and left areas or went to neighborhoods so they could have majority white schools. Or I mean, you know, you end up with majority white schools with all the resources and black schools without them in the North as well as the South with or without the sanction of law. But how you get to a narrative that sounds like, well, now we've healed it. Now we've fixed it. Now uh, we know what the issue is and there's no more, nothing to look at here, you know, move along is to say the issue is put all the black kids into white schools, which is not what people were asking for. You know, along with these sort of misguided narratives that we've been told, certainly that I that I've come to understand, one of the ideas is that this wasn't a problem in the North, that because it wasn't so blatant and written into law in the North. I wonder if there was a, a piece of that that allowed people to say, you know, here are these racist laws in the South. Right. We, we've overturned those. And so now everybody can do it like we do in the North. Yes. But then the North is is the exact same thing just without the it's laws. The and, you know, the the thing about the North. It, it, so in New York City, which is a, a constant state of how can we segregate, racially segregate our schools, um, it, the largest civil rights demonstration ever, 400 thousand people get together to march 
asking for integrated schools, like a plan, a plan to integrate New York City schools. But then you have a couple of thousand white mothers in New York City who go out marching in the rain, complaining and saying, oh, my God, my poor child, what will happen? And the the will of those couple thousand mothers, that's what carries the day. So the North is implicated in this anti-busing, don't force Black children on white parents who don't want them. Right. The North's way of dealing with it has just been to not deal with it, to not talk about it, to not make it uh, an issue, and to just sort of quietly support efforts that will keep school segregated. Yeah, I think euphemisms are a really powerful way to avoid. Yes. It's like when we're talking about busing or parenting, we don't have to talk about racism. Or Yes, you know. exactly. Yeah, and then there's this like version of it that is quote unquote colorblind, that is, it's just about housing values or it's just exactly. about, uh, you know, exactly. the educational models. This narrative of continually hoarding funds for some groups of people Whatever the groups of people are in the history of American public education, the people who have to make do with less, whatever, whoever's hoarding, the people make do with less are black and brown poor people always. And it's almost like you have to try, you have to work at having that be so consistently true in the history of the United States, the entire history in every region that just doesn't happen by accident. No, it happens through really intentional, deliberate work. I mean, what would happen today if we said what we're going to do is, well, first of all, you'd have to find enough black teachers to be putting in schools. But what instead of starting with the kids, what would it look like? And I don't have an answer for it. Right. But what would it look like to first have integrated teaching forces and administrators in schools? And have them figure out the best way to then integrate kids. Like, is that even something that would work today? And I don't know. It's it's a it's a powerful piece of the story. It's a piece of the story that doesn't get told. But I think it's also a piece of the story that if we if we can actually, I don't know that we are capable of, but were we to actually grapple with like what it actually mm-hmm. means, the sort of the the truth that it's trying to get at. But maybe it's not that we start by integrating teachers. I don't know, you know, is, is that possible or not? But at least if we get rid of this idea that the only way to educate is the white way to educate, that the yes. only way to have a good school is a white school, that yes. whiteness needs to be centered, yes. that, that, that whatever we can do to push back against that is sort of the first step to actually being able to educate all of our kids rather than the handful of kids of color who are willing to sort of acclimate themselves to a yes. white culture. Yeah, exactly. It's a question without an answer. And I think that's the, for an academic I'm I'm into, but it is then frustrating for people who are like, we're trying to save our kids because they're like, OK, what do we do? And if I start telling this story, right. then I have rooms full of people going, OK, so we need to send the black teachers to the white school. And I'm like, OK, I don't know if that's going to work. I'm just telling you what the people who were doing it, you know, <laughs> before proposed. So it's right. frustrating on the one. And we just we really don't know. There's almost no research to show what an integrated teaching because we don't and we don't and we've never had we even when in the heyday right. of uh, integration in, in the South, uh, the 14, 15 years where where we actually sort of started letting it work and test scores started rising. That still wasn't these were not integrated teaching core. So we right. still don't know. So it's still an open question. But it, I mean, it does seem like the the instances of 
really strong black schools, you know, Ivy Leaf schools, the um, it's the lady in the Oakland right. community yeah. schools, these sort of things yeah. that you write about. There's a fundamental belief in and expectation of mm-hmm. kids of color. Mm-hmm. That seems to me at least to be one of the things that we're lacking. All these things that we that set us up to not have high expectations for people. And and when you had these schools run by people from the community recognizing the value of education and believing that the kids were capable, that's where you had the best yes, outcomes. Yes. Why isn't the answer then to recreate the black schools of the past? What is what is the benefit of integration rather than sort of mobilizing the black community to recreate those spaces. The thing about integration is just simply, it's the only thing that has systemically worked. The ways that white people fight to hold on to resources historically at every moment mean that ensuring equal resources for vulnerable communities looks like a losing proposition. Like we can keep asking, right? But there's very little to to show that that's going to work. Everyday folks who are not sitting around reading academic texts, they are just like, you know, I want the best school for my kid. And then everybody else can find the best school for their kid. Then we're good. That can sometimes make it difficult for everyone to actually see how there's an intent behind where we find ourselves. Yeah. Um, it we, did not just sort of happen this way. And it's not individual desire. It's not, you know, f- familiar intent. It's not your in your backyard, what you did. It's a much larger, longer story. And uh, I'm waiting for the presidential candidate to contextualize education issues with that history and not with just the present. Like, talk about the history. Talk about how we got here sometime. Um, and not this both sides. Of course, every other good people all around. Um, well, there, there may be And that's true because these are systemic issues that have nothing to do often with what individuals chose, except for the people in your organization, of course, Courtney, who are making individual (laughs) uh, determinations to combat these systemic issues as a way of helping, you know, while, while we're waiting for the rest of the politicians to get it together. The hope is that more people being actively engaged is what actually holds the politicians accountable to doing something about it. Yeah. Eventually. I mean, well, well, more people who um, have some resources and who are listened to, like, quite frankly, right? Like, it, right. it's having right. white parents will attract a kind of scrutiny and maybe a kind of grace that will get the issue. So it's a multi-prong. That's not the only thing that will do it. But, but to have white yes. parents and kids be making these intentional decisions um, on the side of right, to my world, on the side of right, then helps bolster the the calls and the strategies and the narratives coming from people who are less well-situated. That's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> That's the dream, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I just, uh, just want to say thank you so much <laughs> for <laughs> sharing your time, as always. This has been amazing. Thank you, Dr. Ricks. Really, really appreciate it. Thank y'all for having me. This is great. I'm excited. Because you guys, this podcast is just blown up, right? It's good, Newlyway. It's really good. Yay. You got to be kind of proud. Shocked for sure. Seriously? <laughs> like, really? Like, did you, or were you surprised when thousands of people started downloading things? Yeah. When, when we, when we had, I think when we hit, hit 300 downloads, we were like, oh my God, 300 <laughs> people are downloading this. This is crazy. <laughs> Dr. 
Rex was really great. Yeah, as always. And did I tell you, Andrew, that she came to one of our online book clubs? It was amazing. That's awesome. And then now she is on the uh, advisory board for integrated schools, right? Yep. We should make sure listeners know she's helping to guide this organization. Yeah. And we are grateful and integrated schools is much better for it. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, that stands out to me from this conversation and, and just from reading her work in general is, is this idea of segronomics, like how much money there is to be made on keeping us separate. Yeah. And while often this is like incredibly nefarious, it's also really cloaked in this like well-meaning sounding for the kids stuff, right? right? I was thinking about all the ways that well-meaning white people with all these good intentions can do real harm. Yeah. The idea of helping sounds really wonderful, right? But it can be incredibly problematic. Yeah. So, you know, this isn't like do not help ad- admonition, right? right. But, but I think we really need to be mindful of the fact that impact matters and matters more than intent. And so she had me thinking a lot about the white savior philanthropy complex and how, you know, this works to kind of cement in narratives around who needs help, who is able to help. And of course, the fabulous Facebook pictures of doing the helping that gets your aunt from Omaha to like, talk about what a wonderful person you are. Right. Yes, that's, that's definitely that's definitely real. And, and you know, that that happens right alongside of the sort of more nefarious forces that we can point to. And I think, you know, in many ways that that sort of provides cover for those more nefarious forces. The, yeah. The money in segregation is just is just mind boggling. That's yeah. um, I'm just struck by that. And and I think it, you know, it, it relies on this narrative that communities of color, A, don't care about education, B, don't know how to do education and, and therefore need some sort of saving. Yeah. And then like Dr. Rook shows the history of how communities of color have had to work exponentially harder to get dramatically less and all the while ignoring the stated goals of black teachers. Yeah, that piece was really interesting, right? Starting integration with the teachers. Like you can imagine we would be in a very different world if we had done that instead of firing all the black teachers and and maintaining this white centered school system. Yeah, I mean, it's no wonder that for a lot of communities of color, school desegregation has had some incredibly negative connotations. Yeah. You know, and again, I feel like it's it's not as much as the what of desegregation, but the how of design and implementation. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the lesson here, the the sort of new story that we can tell is that for school integration to work, we have to approach this work in a way that doesn't rely on on white normed ways of thinking. You know, integration has to be about creating spaces that welcome and value everyone. And, and that's a piece that we've just never really done. And, and I think we've never really done it in part because of these stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah, that piece is really important. There was always and still continues to be intent behind where we find ourselves. The, right. the system is working as it was designed to work, right? This is yeah. no accident. This is no like throwing up of our hands and saying, well, you know, our neighborhoods are segregated, so it's just how things are. Right. You know, like stories like that erase intent and that kind of erasure really makes it difficult to do to do anything different. Yeah, I mean, I think that the anything different that we'd like to do is, you know, is to know these stories, is to keep yeah. them in the forefront of our consciousness, and then use that to make corrective efforts, right? To try to improve things both at the policy level, but also at the playground level, at the individual choice level. Yeah, and so at this point, like when we have very few truly integrated schools, and where policy for school integration and educational justice is being undermined at most every turn, there really are things that we as individual parents can do, like desegregate our kids and integrate our families. All right. 2021, Andrew back again. And, you know, the the only thing I'd add here is that 
I, I think there are ways in which we are slowly being convinced as a country that maybe the devil really does exist, right? Like some of the ways that systemic racism was hidden by meritocracy, by stories of grit, by conversations about housing values. Some of that has definitely come out of the shadows in the past year or so. And, and that is good and important. It has also coincided with, you know, an increased feeling of vulnerability for everyone. But I think that feeling maybe comes as a bit more of a surprise to white folks, right? And and in our vulnerability, it seems like we're really leaning into this ever-present and intentional hoarding of resources that Dr. Rooks talks about. Pandemic pods, private tutors, even vaccines, right? So I'm just left wondering, like, what a reframing of our country's racial story would mean in a context with less vulnerability. I, I don't know the answer. I don't know how we get there. But I do think that having a clear understanding of the harms of the Brown decision, of the ways in which the vision of integration that activists of the time had, people like Dr. Rooks's grandfather, right, that that was not the version we ended up with. Understanding that feels like an important first step. And that's why I'm so grateful to Dr. Rooks for joining us and for her ongoing support of integrated schools. Tomorrow, we've got Amanda Lewis talking about segregation within school buildings, which is a wonderful reminder of the difference between desegregation and real integration. If you'd like to support this all-volunteer effort, patreon.com slash integrated schools, we'd be incredibly grateful. Find us on social media at integrated schools or email us. Let us know what you thought of the episode or what you'd like to hear in future episodes. Hello at integrated schools.org. And as always, I'm grateful to be in this with you as I try to know better and do better. See you tomorrow.